Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Physicists and engineers around the world are working hard to create viable quantum computers, which, at least in principle, could be much better than conventional computers at solving certain problems. One task that quantum computers are expected to excel at is finding the factors of large numbers. This could be a big problem for people who use conventional cryptographic systems, which work under the assumption that finding the factors of a large number is beyond the capability of computers currently available to hackers. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with an expert in quantum-safe cryptography, who explains what we should be doing now to mitigate the future threat of quantum computers. Ali El Kafarani is the CEO of UK-based PQ Shield, which develops new cryptography standards that are quantum safe. He's an expert on post-quantum cryptography, and he joins me down the line from Oxford to explain why quantum technologies pose risks to existing cryptography systems and what can be done about it. Hi, Ali. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and thanks a lot for having me. So first things first, Ali, why do quantum technologies pose risks to existing cryptography systems? That's a good question. Let's start first by recapping why we need cryptography systems in our digital um, life. Basically, all sorts of security guarantees like confidentiality and authenticity and data integrity rely on cryptography. So basically, encryption methods and digital signatures that we use to authenticate ourselves, to authenticate devices, to communicate with each other, and to communicate securely by encrypting the data while data is in transit. And to make sure that those encryption methods and digital signature are unbreakable, we rely on mathematics, namely on math problems that are difficult to solve on classical computers, because these are the computers that we have at the moment. And we have a way to measure the difficulty of those math problems. So we know exactly how long it takes for that particular math problem to be solved if the instance, the problem instance is of a certain size. And therefore, by tuning the size of the parameter of that problem, we tune the difficulty of the encryption method that relies on this mathematical problem. And of course here, if you want to measure the difficulty of any mathematical problem, as I said, you need to first identify or use or um, basically one uh, uh, computing model. And so far, the computing models that we have are Turing machine likes and classical computers that instantiations. But since 1980s, we knew that there is a different way to build computing machines. And that way is called quantum computers, or those machines will be called quantum computers. And the way is basically by relying on quantum mechanics. Therefore, the 
scene has changed since then. The, now, we don't only have one computing model, but we have another computing model, and therefore we had to reassess the difficulty of those math problems to see if they still are, they are still difficult to solve even on a quantum computer. So the idea of quantum computing started in 1980s. The first algorithms that was designed to work on a quantum computer was basically published in 1994, around 1994. And that algorithms was basically an algorithm that can solve a family of mathematical problems under which we have the integer factorization and the discrete logarithm problem. So these are two number theoretic problems, mathematical problems. So since 1994, we knew that the math problems that underlie RSA and elliptic curve cryptography that underpin all the encryption methods and digital signatures that we, we use nowadays from your WhatsApp application, to the way you connect to your bank, to the ATM machine, and you name it. We know since then that these are actually breakable on a quantum computer. And therefore, all the security guarantees that they provide are questionable and will not actually stay uh, uh, possible to achieve once you have a quantum computer. Okay, and and I think once is the is the key there. Um, these these quantum computers don't exist. Well, at least quantum com computers that can do the required calculations don't exist today. But they will, or you know, we're pretty sure that they will exist in the future. So, what can organizations do today to protect themselves from from these quantum threats? So, why do we care about? quantum-resistant or encryption methods that are still secure even with the presence of a quantum computer if we don't have a quantum computer yet? And this basically answers that, that helps us answer the second question, that, the main question that you asked. We care now because every communication tool that we're using relies and makes use of those encryption methods of RSA and the likes. And anyone could basically intercept those communications and store all the transcripts, albeit encrypted. But once there is access to a quantum computer in the next 5, 10, 15 years, people can access that quantum computer with all the stored data, and they can decrypt it and they can read it. So basically, all the communication tools that we're using nowadays are breakable once there is a quantum computer retrospectively, and the data will be basically available to anyone who has access to such a, a quantum uh, computer. And therefore now, any corporate, any government needs to look at their infrastructure and their data, the sensitivity of the data they're exchanging, they, they are exchanging over that infrastructure to understand what risk they carry if they keep the current encryption methods. If they're encrypting something that is only needed to be confidential for a couple of hours or for one day, then that's not a priority. If they are encrypting something that is sensitive, if they're encrypting identifiable healthcare uh, medical data about, about a patient, if they're encrypting intellectual properties, if they're encrypting you know, trade, trade secrets, if they're encrypting, you name it, a, a whole class of 
what we call classified or non-classified, but still uh, secretive data, then there where they need to start looking at what they're using to encrypt such data or to exchange or to communicate. And in terms of hardware, in terms of software, in terms of protocols, and put a transition roadmap to post-quantum cryptography. So what corporates and governments need to do is to assess their data and their infrastructure, how valuable they are in particular data, and based on that, put a transition roadmap to post-quantum cryptography. And I'm mentioning post-quantum cryptography now, although I haven't explained what it is, I will explain. But basically, to use different cryptographic methods that are still secure, even with the presence of a quantum computer. That's how they can start the preparation, and then they can execute on the transition and the roadmap transition to to post-quantum cryptography. Right. And so I suppose the bottom line is a, a lot of that stuff that you thought was secret and secure in the future, it, um, it might not be. Um, so you better start changing your ways now. Absolutely. Is there anything, Ali, that, that people can do regarding this information that's out there already? Um, or do they just have to resign themselves to, to the fact that it will be cracked or it could be cracked if people wanted to? Yeah, unfortunately, we there's nothing we can do about any data that has been already exchanged over insecure channels over the internet, etc. Um, right. Because you can't you can't be sure that no one managed to intercept that channel and download the data and store it. Again, it all depends on the sensitivity of the data. You wouldn't expect, you know, governments or uh, uh, you know corporates or whoever they are, to, to basically scan all the internet and download everything. Mm. But you also don't expect them not to scan the internet and download something and store something, right? So it's happening, it's happening already. We know that some sort of data is being stored in preparation to be decrypted, and there is nothing we can do about any data that has been exchanged already. The only thing that we can do is to introduce new encryption methods that withstand the power of quantum computers. Okay. And so that I suppose that moves us along nicely to, to the next thing that um, I'd like to chat about is what, what are those new methods that, um, that are quantum secure? Right. So math is beautiful. And there are different families of computational problems in mathematics that are believed to be difficult to solve computationally speaking. And whilst that is a family that happened to be underlying RSA and elliptic curve cryptography and happened to be the first to be cracked by an algorithm that can run on a quantum computer, this is not the case to many other families of computational problems, mathematical problems that are computationally difficult to solve. And therefore, the idea of defending against the quantum threat started by saying, well, let's use different mathematics that is still difficult to solve on a quantum computer. And this is what we call post-quantum cryptography to mean basically encryption methods that rely on math that is still difficult to crack or solve even on a quantum computer. And we have ways to test the difficulty of such problems. We have a whole 
complexity theory in computer science, where we use we classify problems into different uh, classes of difficulty. So that's a very mature field, and we know it very well. We know how to test those um, uh, computational problems. The challenge is to be able to build an encryption method on top of a computationally difficult problem. That's the challenge, because you have a lot of mathematical problems that are difficult to solve. But you want to build an encryption method that is still efficient to use. You can always come up with an encryption method that is super inefficient, but nobody's going to use it, even if it's secure. So you want something that is efficient, that you can actually encrypt your data in your lifetime, right? And, um, and use it. So you want a usable, efficient encryption method and still difficult to crack. And that is the challenge there. But this field has been um, progressing in parallel to what has been happening with RSA Analytica. So it is like a field where some schemes uh, date back to 1970s and 1980s. It's not something that we just came up with in 1990s. Hey, RSA is broken. Let's look something uh, for something else in mathematics and build something and come up with something. That's not the case. Basically, the, the, this field has been progressing in parallel. And when NSA in the US and other intelligence agencies like GCHQ and, and other national cybersecurity centers, ANSI and BSI, in, 19, in, in 2015 um, said that, well, let's standardize alternatives to RSA. The field was already in a sort of like mature state in a, in a way that you're not starting from scratch. Of course, the scrutinization is a lot higher at that point in time where everyone on earth is looking at those schemes. And that's why some of them were uh, too weak to, to basically uh, stay secure. And uh, after all the attacks that have been run, and that's exactly the point of standardizing cryptography so that you invite everyone to try to crack them. And then how that's how you gain confidence in, in those schemes. So to, to, to sum it up here, we move to math that is difficult to crack even on a quantum computer. And that's not something that companies came up with, like every company uh, has come up with an algorithm and we build the products around it and we sell. That's not the way cryptography works. It's highly standardized technology and usually advised by intelligence agencies in, the, in every country. In the Western side of the world, it's mainly led by, by the US, uh, given the budget needed and everything, the work that is needed to do this. That's why NIST in the US took care of the standardization process. And as we speak now, we do have the first batch of encryption methods and digital signatures that rely on different mathematics that is still believed to be difficult even on a quantum computer. And that is why it makes sense now for corporates to actually look at roadmaps to transition to post-quantum cryptography because they do have alternatives now. And the alternatives, as I said, is a, a set of standards that uh, were looked after by, by governments are not just companies trying to sell uh, things that they came up with. And and so the sort of products that you offer are based on those alternatives. I mean, is there a specific alternative that you've that you're that you're working on at the moment or are you exploring several alternatives? That's a great question. So basically at PQ Shield, we were super lucky. We started PQ Shield back in 2018 after I spent quite a few years at the math department at the University of Oxford. So PQ Shield is a spin-out 
of Oxford University. And we managed to assemble a team of great talents in the cryptography from the cryptography community. And those talents basically got involved in the standardization process itself. And when the four algorithms were announced last July, our technical team and advisory team were involved in the four algorithms that were standardized. So we know the standards very well because we actually co-developed those standards. Now, what you sell as a cryptography company is not the algorithm itself. The algorithm is basically the recipe. You need to implement this algorithm in software, in hardware, and you need to integrate it into protocols. And that's what we do at PQ Shield. We provide a post-quantum cryptography platform where you can upgrade your hardware and you can upgrade your, your software and you can integrate our libraries into your applications so that your WhatsApp can become secure if you want, that your VPN can become post-quantum secure if you want by integrating our software, but also your chips can become post-quantum capable if you want and by that, we mean embedding processors and coprocessors that can handle post-quantum algorithms more securely and efficiently. Eventually, when you want a high level of security, you need to rely on hardware. And when you rely on hardware, you need to have cryptography built in hardware. And that's basically the um, what I'm Okay. And, and when you were an academic researcher at Oxford, and, and I suppose you came up with the idea for PQ Shield, is it because that you were doing, um, you were doing research into cryptography? Is that, is, was that you, what you were looking at as, as an academic researcher? Yes, I was basically a cryptographic researcher, but I joined the math department to start a project on post-quantum cryptography, which was government-funded project. And that was in 2015. And now you see that this is basically the time where all governments were working in you know, coordination to build local capacities to be able to handle the new standards. Because when you have those uh, new standards, you need to basically have um, uh, you know, the resources to integrate and upgrade your infrastructure and, and your protocols, communications, etc. So yes, I was working at the math department as a cryptographic researcher on a post-quantum cryptography uh, project and worked on it for four years before we decided to take it to a commercial industrial setting because that is basically where the standards are going. So we worked at the math department for as long as it was still at an algorithmic level. And once things moved into actually working on industrial aspect of those solutions or of those algorithms and later on deploying those solutions, you need to you need to do this in a in an industrial setting and not in an academic setting. Okay, and that, that was 2018. Um, fast forward to 2023. Um, how, how has the company grown? How many employees do you have? And 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 what sort of people? Um, work at at the company? Is it mostly mathematicians or do you have physicists, engineers? What, what, what sort of people are you looking for? So the company has grown from, uh, you know, uh, just myself to 50 people at the moment. We're 50 people. We're working from 10 countries, from the US, 
and the UK headquartered in, in, in Oxford, office in, in London, Oxford, and also from Paris and other European countries down to uh, Japan. So uh, we're uh, decentralized, working from different countries. Basically, um, our presence is talent dependent. Wherever there are cryptographic talents, we were willing to invest and, and hire those talents who wanted to join us on, on our mission. And 35 of, out of those 50 um, are technical people, which is the largest in industry when it comes to post-quantum capabilities. So we have the largest team of post-quantum cryptographers and their backgrounds um, is uh, diverse, engineering, computer science, mathematics. Uh, in our advisory board, we have also people from uh, physics background uh, as well, but the engineering team is, um, as I said, diverse and has the um, computer science to, to pure mathematics um, background. That's basically um, how, how PikaShield looks like now. And, and what would you say to um, you know somebody who's studying mathematics, let's say, or, or even physics at, at university at the moment? How, how would you encourage them to, uh, to pursue a career in cryptography, because it sounds like a, it's a really happening industry at the moment with the threat of, of quantum computing. And also, I suppose, quantum cryptography techniques as well, which is something that we didn't talk about, but um, is relevant. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my advice is for those who are studying, um, wh whether it's physics or, or math or any types of engineering, is to basically take a cryptographic course in their undergrad and get themselves exposed to what cryptography looks like. It is a multidisciplinary topic that sits um, between different really cool uh, um, topics and, and uh, sciences, uh, from math to engineering to computer science to physics. And of course, I'm a cryptographer. My my opinion here is 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 biased, but yeah, I well, that's do, okay. I do believe that it's one of the coolest application that you could you could work on cryptography. There is, you know, nothing that you can't do with it in terms of hardware, in terms of firmware, in terms of software, in terms of applications, and the impact is is immediate and and visible, and you can you can you can see it. You write a line of code, and that line of code will be used by your relatives if it's a WhatsApp application, and uh, and you know uh, your your colleagues if it's a uh, if it's a banking system. Like it's something that has direct impact on on society. And given our move to a an ever digitized world, we really need to take with us the. Uh, guarantees that we had where we used to show our ID and people would know who we are. You want something equivalent in this digital world where you can authenticate yourself, you can identify yourself and also a device where you can actually keep your secrets secrets. That's It's a human right, right? Uh, I want to, I don't want to share my medical data with anyone. That's, that's my, my, my human right. And being in a place where you're actually providing that tool that can be used to uh, provide this level of privacy and other 
security guarantees. I think it's it's one of the coolest way to use um, you know uh, sciences and mathematics and and engineering in in a in a very cool place. Mm. Oh, that's a really interesting point, Ali. So so what's next? Uh, what's next for PQ Shield? So we're now at the moment where uh, um, standards were announced. The first batch of standards, post-quantum cryptography standards, uh, was announced last July. That's a set of four algorithms. When the when these algorithms were announced, another call to standardize additional digital signatures was open. The deadline for that call was first of June this this June, to which we submitted four algorithms for new candidates, digital signature candidates, one of which we collaborated with the French government on, with ANSI. So it was a collaboration between us and the French government, and the submission was sent to, to the US government, which is a very cool uh, position to be in. But what I meant is post-quantum cryptography is an evolving field. Uh, what's next for us is to keep on the ahead when it comes to the innovation and um, uh, building new methods that will be standardized, but also uh, take the products that we built and deploy them, which we already started. And uh, our customer base um, has a lot of um, large corporates and and very interesting logos. Um, now, in terms of timeline for post-quantum cryptography standards, so the four algorithms were announced last July. In July, August, the first drafts will be out. And there is an event that will be announced soon um, in Oxford to basically look at the drafts where the major stakeholders uh, will be also in Oxford here to review the drafts and come back with an answer to NIST. This is the feedback that you get from all those stakeholders put in one place. And then you expect NIST to ratify the standards and publish the actual standards the first half of the uh, of 2024. And now you, you can see that that is going to be a an inflection point where the standards are out. So you have official NIST standards, and that is why preparation for, for post-quantum cryptography, for transitioning to post-quantum cryptography has to happen from now because, you know, a year from now, there will be official standards. And therefore, for us, what's next to PQ Shield is to be there when all those large corporates and governments move to the next phase in the transitioning roadmap to post-quantum cryptography and provide them with the right products, the secure products, to move them, uh, uh, you know, uh, phase after phase to eventually become post-quantum secure. As we know, it's not something that can be done overnight. Transitioning to post-quantum cryptography is something that will take a few years to 10 years for very large corporates. And we will be there for, for those uh, partners, help them from the initial phase to the phase where they can raise the flag and say, we're all post-quantum secure. In that process, PQ Shield will, will be growing, uh, will be uh, announcing further 
funding and doing more funding and um, as, as you'd expect from a deep tech uh, company to exist in various uh, places and different sectors. So that's basically what's next for PQ Shield. Oh, that's great, Ali. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast and talking about post-quantum cryptography. It's it's de definitely a, uh, uh, you, you've done a very good sales job in terms of convincing people to do mathematics um, so that they can make the world a better place. Um, so yeah, best of luck with the company in the future. Thank you very much. That was Ali El Kafarani of PQ Shield. The company has just announced its contributions to the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology draft standards for quantum-safe cryptography. Scientists are always on the lookout for new ways of generating usable energy that doesn't involve the emission of greenhouse gases. In the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, host Andrew Glester is in conversation with Nicole Kaplan of the European Space Agency. She's investigating the feasibility of sending a fleet of solar cells into space and beaming the energy they generate back to Earth using microwaves. Also on hand is Danny Coles of England's University of Plymouth, who explains how we can extract energy from the tides. And the podcast also features Douglas Gillespie at St. Andrews University in Scotland, who assesses the risks to large marine mammals from such infrastructure. That episode is called Green and Novel, The Future of Energy Generation, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider where you can find all episodes of the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks to Ali El Kafarani for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, when the podcast will feature a conversation with members of Space Pride, which is a new charity that is challenging the space industry's attitudes to diversity. Physics World.